Uh, okay. Do you, any of you have questions or any, anything here that you're not, that's not fitting together? Yes, Linda. Okay, you mentioned at one point about you had thoughts that maybe this psalm wasn't all written at the same time. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. We, we don't know. The scripture does not give us the, uh, the timetable for how this was composed. We, there are some psalms that seem to... Here's something really interesting. There are a couple psalms that are nearly identical. Um, I'll give you one example. Second Samuel has David record a song of praise for God's deliverance from Saul. Well, that shows up, I think it's Psalm 18 or 16. Um, the, the black clouds went before me, the lightnings and the fire, and God answered, and God came down. Slight alterations. And so our best understanding is that there's an adapted version. So this, the version we get in Samuel is David's like, original composition, and then there's an adapted version for Israel's hymnal, right? Um, so that, that also then suggests that the composition may not just be instantaneous. These pe- we think of people just get inspired and they write. Perhaps he worked on this for months. Perhaps the various um, strophes were written over years. We, we do not know. So the point being, we, because the different strophes can evidence such different emotional um, uh, strength, reading through it, it takes 19 minutes to read a, Psalm 119, roughly. You're going to go through a roller coaster of praise and depths and up and down. And yet, um, this could have been written over years in the life of somebody. And so we want, to, we want to let the tone. Part of the reason why I didn't want to jump to the resolution in the next stanza, because there is resolution. The questions he asks here get answered in the next stanza. But this unit, and it's clearly a unit. There's internal structure by the whole acrostic pattern. This unit centers on that vexed cry of how long, why, when, and I want to let that note ring before we get on to the, okay, here's the answer. Uh, I think so often in, um, oh, you're asking the question about composition. So we don't know. Now, equally, the psalmist could have written this in one really busy afternoon. I don't know. But we can't assume one way or the other. That, that's, that's, it was the introduction to this section by uh, this, this book, this little uh, devotional commentary by Brian Borgman. It was what I read. He he said that. Um, and um, in fact, I'll, I'll read the quote and then stop. The observant reader notices that the moods change between stanzas. There is no emotional symmetry. There's, it's up, it's down. It's, it's not a constant throughout the different stanzas. There's a pretty good possibility that the psalmist composed these stanzas over time and not all at once. And this would account for the varying moods. It's possible. So that's that's the quote I read. Okay. Any other thoughts, questions, complaints? A strophe. Okay. In Hebrew, a strophe would be the equivalent of a paragraph, or it's it's a unit in poetry. Think of it like a verse of a song. Um, so it's a self-contained unit within the psalm. And sometimes we have to guess at the structure of a psalm, but Psalm 119 is an elongated acrostic. So the pattern is eight verses starting with Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The equivalent would be like eight verses all starting with A, and then all starting with B, and all starting with C. So it's unmistakable, the pattern. Um, And so each eight-verse group is a verse. But since we—the reason we use—the reason I'll use strophe instead of verse— 
when you're talking about songs or a hymn we sing and you talk about a verse, you mean the entire verse. But since the Bible uses the word verse in your translations in a different way to mean the little number next to the chapter, it'd be confusing if I talked about the verse and you weren't sure if I meant a particular verse or the verse. So I've used strophe um, going through this. But stanza would work just as well. Um, Same idea. A literary unit in poetry is a strophe. Um, good, Good question. Anything, any other questions or thoughts or complaints? Anything? Microphone, microphone. Microphone. Sorry. Do you think all the psalms were sung? I think they were intended to be sung. Whether or not they, I'm not saying, I don't want to say the only legitimate use of the psalms is singing, but... A ton of these psalms are dedicated to the choir master. There's a real choir master. There's real corporate singing. So absolutely, I think all of these were in. In fact, some of the um, some of the notation around them seems to indicate the tune. Let me let me give you an example. Go to uh, where to? Ooh. Yeah, go to sixty-two. Pastor Daniel's um, message on psalm titles, which I thought was excellent. The psalm titles are part of the Hebrew text, and yet, how would you notate them? What verse is it? Like Psalm 62, verse 0? <laughs> it shows up before verse 1. And yet, all of our Hebrew texts have them, and they contain information. Um, and so here, to the choir master, according to Jedathun, a psalm of David, My guess is, according to Jedithun, it's a melody or perhaps a style. Like we have things like, you know, we have salsa and we have polka. I I don't know what Jedithun is. That's one of the things that they struggle with is what some of these terms mean. But there's there's musical notation. So, yeah, in the original context, these were sung. Um, Not that you can't use them without singing, but absolutely they were were sung. Um, And the estate in heaven that God set up People are singing. God, God's a fan of songs. Zeb, uh, microphone. So uh, just to also reiterate that this is that the singing of psalms is not exclusive to the Old Covenant community. Like we are expressly told to sing psalms, not, not songs in general. Psalms. psalms are named yes. as a specific part of the liturgy of of yep. the New Covenant Church in um, in Ephesians specifically. Paul yeah, Psalms and hymns up. and spiritual songs. And that's, I mean, yeah. throughout most of church history, that was a large section of the music that was sung yeah. by Christians post-cross. Yeah, if you want to pick up an interesting book, Isaac Watts took all the Psalms, adapted them to English meter, and then threw in a fair bit of cross theology. And... You can pick it up. My mom's got a copy. It's fascinating watching him put into English meter and rhyme with the cross, which is not nearly as overt in the Psalms. Um, pretty faithful paraphrasings, restructurings of the, of the Psalms. But no, we, we were, I mean, I think we're free to sing. There are some churches that are exclusive psalmody, and I think that that view should get a lot more respect and a lot more 
credence than it does. I don't think it's totally valid, but I like the emphasis. If I had to pick a church that didn't sing psalms and only sang psalms, I'd pick only sang psalms 10 days a week. Um, so I think it's good that we sing psalms. And some, my favorite music group does nothing but put psalms to music. Sons of Korah, just fantastic. My kids can sing a ton of those. I mean, you can memorize things by singing them. Um, the other, yeah, the other interesting point about Psalm 119 is the acrostic helps in memorizing it, which suggests when God intended his people to memorize his word, things like 176 verse long psalms were considered part of the par for the course, apparently. Hit it. Also, to point out that they didn't have printing presses or the ability to just shoot lyrics up on screens yeah. the way we have today. Yeah, yeah. So, like, all of these songs that were very clearly intended to be sung were intended to be sung from memory, yeah. by and large. I mean, there would be, there would be obviously, um, some, some type of a book that could be learned from, yeah. but it wasn't as if every Old Covenant Jewish person who was faithfully, you know, attending the temple and their, um, and their local meetings was... Like it's not like they had a, a psalm book. Right. They didn't have a uh, yeah. They didn't have that handy. They what they sang they memorized. Yeah, their local community might have a copy of the Psalter, but unless you were very rich, you probably didn't have your own. What's What's interesting actually um, is plug for a book Neil Postman's "Amusing Ourselves to Beth." If you haven't read it, fantastic. He observes that different media when when the when the community shifts mediums of communication and he's primarily looking at oral communication written communication and visual communication by television he's looking at those three big shifts the attendance skills necessary in the community change so the attendance skills for oral is memory and so when when you're in an oral community you've got to memorize and so like any skill and any muscle that you 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 flex you get stronger um, and so in oral communities, you memorize. That's why, date, that's why Solomon is supposed to be considered to be a wise king because at his lips were over 3,000 proverbs, which today is kind of an uh, oddity. You might, you know, we came and heard Jason Nightingale because, man, he memorized all the chapters, but it was, kind of an, it was cool, but it wasn't something you're aspiring to. I mean, when I grew up, I want to have 3,000 Proverbs memorized. I've never heard the kids say that. Because in our culture, that skill is not valued because you got a book. You can just open up to the page. What do I need to memorize it for? So in an oral culture, the ability to memorize and memorization is an incredibly important skill. And yet, I think in our culture, lyrics is one of the few places it still sticks. Have you? How much, tell me if you've had this experience. I have. song comes on the radio you have not heard in 20 years. And you know every word to it. You didn't know you knew every word to it, but you're singing along with it. So melody, meter, rhythm, and lyric, it's probably the one place where memory still works incredibly well in our culture. And so if in a oral culture God put it to music and put it to melody and, and meter, how much more then should we be doing the same thing? It's why when we can find songs that literally take the psalms and put them to music, like let's sing some of those. I'd like to sing more psalms. Um, because we know that they're inerrant. You know, our musical selection might not might be errant, but these are the perfect lyrics. I don't care how good in Christ alone is, and I think it's excellent. This is superior, right? 
So amen, Zeb. If you look back in, well, I don't know how you would. I wrote two essays in our pastor's pen last summer on a pro-exclusive psalm that and then why I don't hold to it, but in part because I think people hear that like legalism, like, no, God wrote 150 songs for us to sing, and most people can't sing any of them. That's not a good, that's not a good development. Even we, yep. we, yeah. we do better than a lot of churches, and we sing like 10 of them. <laughs> right. And we sing, here's, here's, the, here's the kicker, we sing the pretty ones. We don't sing the ones about God crushing his enemies. Yeah. We don't sing the bloody ones. Right, right, and those right. are every bit as... Right, right. <laughs> this, is, this is just something that I've been thinking. It's no, been no, rolling absolutely. around in my head. Like, there's a reason why. It's like, they're, like, like what you said, there's songs for joy and celebration, and those are great. There's songs for grieving and mourning, and those yeah. are important. There's also songs for fighting, and those are yeah. absolutely vital. Oh, there's a, oh no, that's, that's, that's one of the things that's... Uh, I think making the church anemic is, I mean, there are other cultures. Look at other cultures and the the cultural um, steps and the cultural mechanisms for dealing with grief and sorrow and lament. I mean, it's a powerful force in other cultures in their own pagan ways. I'm not saying they're right. But through the, I mean, even in in the Hebrew culture, you'd rip your garments. I mean, there's, there, God... God is an emotional being, and he makes us in his image, and we're emotional beings. And emotions are powerful. And if I were to simply judge by the modern top 100 songs on the Christian chart, we have no language to use for real grief and grieving. It's gotta, and if there is grief and grieving, it's got to be wrapped up with a bow by the end of the song. Um, it's got to be pretty. It's got to be happy. It's got to be, you know. And there's, we need that too. Sure we do. But... We we need to be able to express grief, and we need to be able to feel safe to express sorrow and anguish. It's one of the reasons why I love the song, I Ask the Lord. I just don't know of many songs that say anything remotely like that. It kind of stands unique in my in my uh, psalm, in my hymnal. Of I don't really know many other songs that say that. Um, Stricken Smitten is another fantastic one, in that it's just really, yeah. And um, see, you introduced me to See He Comes, which is, there are themes that are in the Psalms that aren't many of our songs that we should, should try to find. Um, because God gave us Psalms to sing in all of the multicolored moods and experiences of life, not just the happy ones. And part of the reason I stress this the way I have this morning is I have met people who I think feel that if they're going to hold their end up for the team, they've got to always be chipper. Whether being a bad witness, a real Christian is a joyful Christian. Yeah, but joy can be deep, deep down while you're being crushed. Um, Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And, and so I would ease that burden that you've got to be Ned Flanders on the outside if you're going to be a faithful Christian. Look at all these different songs God gave his people to sing. One of the other things that I find incredibly helpful in my own emotional life when I'm struggling with things is knowing that if I can find a psalm that expresses what I'm feeling and I can pray and sing that, I'm in bounds and I'm safe. Like, it, maybe I'm overly analytical. I'm feeling strong emotions and I want to make sure I express them in a way that's God-honoring and not unrighteous, you know? Um, I, I don't trust my feelings, <laughs> I don't trust that I couldn't turn them selfishly. But if I can find a psalm that directs them, I'm good. 
Like God has given me like it's almost like a riverbed to direct the water uh, of the of the passion and the the uh, emotions in my heart. And so I so I'll just sometimes flip through the Psalms. I find one that's like, yeah, that's what I'm feeling. That's where I'm at. Okay, well, here is a godly and righteous way to express that. To use Zeb's example, here's a godly and righteous way to sing about battle. Here's a godly and righteous way to mourn the loss of a child. Here's a godly and righteous way to pray that God bring fire down on your enemies. Go read Psalm 35, man. There are some heavy-duty psalms. Um, And so when you find one that is where you're at emotionally, you can be confident this is a righteous way to process this emotion. This is a righteous way to process these feelings. And so I, I really appreciate the Psalms in that way. Um, does, that make, I mean, does that make sense at all? Yeah. Because, I, you know, I don't trust my own way of processing my emotions all the time, um, expressing them. You know, I mean, my, my twins express their emotions constantly. And it's not always pretty. <laughs> like, no, they're, they're showing their true self. Only because they're impotent. If they had, if they could, they would strike me down. It's just cute because they can't. Oh, look at him! He's really, she's really furious. No, my, my one of my twins. I put her down in their crib, and she was just angry. I mean, it was like you. It's just cute because she can't do anything. But man. As, as Paul Washer said, if she had the faculties of an 18-year-old, she'd just strike me down where I was and walk over my dead body. No questions. I mean, she might feel bad about it five seconds later. But... That's right. That's right. Wanted a vineyard. No. Um, anyway, sorry. That's a long tangent. Yes, sir. Uh, Dave. <clears throat> There's a lot of metaphor and poetry. Yes. Psalms, Proverbs. Yeah, yeah. And I do daily bread just about every day. And I get a little disappointed. It seems like lately all the references have been Old Testament. And whenever I see that, I kind of do a heavy sigh. And, well, that's what I'm saying. And I'm realizing... It's three quarters of your Bible, right? Pardon me? Old Testament's three quarters of your Bible. Yeah, if you go by weight, probably. <laughs> but it's also... I know it's important, and I'm finding out yeah. how more important it is, prophecy and so on. But the New Testament is... So so much more fulfilling to me. Is there something wrong with me? I, no, no, I, no. I put no. a heavier weight on the New Testament than the Old Testament. No, the New, well, what you get, if you want to think about it, the New Testament, all the New Testament is, are four, five historical documents. So you've got five historical records, the four Gospels and Acts, right? Jesus came, that was a big deal. So we're going to start by telling you about his coming and what he did and what he said and where he went and what people did to him. And then we're going to tell you about the next 20 or so years in the church. And then all of Paul's letters are simply telling churches very practically what to do in response to that. There's a sense in which there's an immediate practicality of the epistles that aren't esoteric. They're stop sleeping with your father's wife. Stop, you know... um, getting drunk at communion, stop. I mean, right? It's really probably like, I wonder what the Lord wants me to do. Um, stop going to prostitutes. Stop, um, you know, comparing yourselves with one another. Stop preferencing the rich people. It's really practical. You're not sitting there like, I wonder what this is doing. Um, but I'd sort of view it like the, the, the top story on a skyscraper. It's built upon 
the Old Testament. And to me, the richness of the Old Testament. So fair enough. A new believer is going to get the most immediate walking steps in the New Testament. They're going to know how to live their life, how to run their marriage, how to run their home, how to relate to the church. It's all going to be very clear. There's going to be a lot of commands. There's going to be a lot of clear, direct instruction. Absolutely. But that's all coming from the Old Testament and things that are set in place. And to me, as I've as I've grown um, older, as I marvel at the the way things are set up in the past and developed as they go along. You know what I mean? Um, I marvel at how um, God asks of Abraham the very thing he's going to do himself. Right? I mean, <laughs> just. And when you find out by cross-referencing that the mountain that Abraham went up on is the mountain Jesus was crucified on, Mount Moriah, um, almost certainly. You're just, Whoa! You know, so that type of intertextuality across time and space and across authors blows my mind. But yes, I, I fully understand that the New Testament, it's, the dots are connected the most, most directly. It's the, it's the most clear and obvious instruction. Yeah, people that, that don't read the Old Testament at all are, are missing a lot, and it's a good foundation, and I'm, I'm starting to appreciate it more and more, but your high-rise building in OLG, you know, the expensive apartments are at the top, too. <laughs> so it's easy sometimes, I don't know, for yeah. me to not put as much importance on the, on the Old Testament because it's referred to a lot in the New Testament. Yes. but. Well, and especially yeah. when the New Testament takes it and applies it now. I mean, I'll give you an example. When you think of loving your neighbor as yourself, what do you think of? What comes to mind first and foremost? That it's impossible. Okay. What else? Who here knows? Who here knows in what context, in what sphere, the command to love your neighbor as yourself takes place originally? What, what's Zeb? You're gonna know. What's, what's? No, no, no. But most people don't think this at all. It's in. It's part of the Levitical law. It is. Yeah. It's the summary of the entirety of the Levitical law. Yeah, go, go to Leviticus 19. I think you'll be surprised at what the original context. So, so here's the argument. Jesus says the second greatest commandment in my ethic is Leviticus 19. Then I better go find out what Leviticus 19 is talking about. And Leviticus 19 may surprise you in what application Leviticus 19 has in mind for you to love your neighbor. I, I think this is fantastic. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. So think about this. Classic Jewish thing. Not this, but this. Put off, put on. So you're going to get two contrasts. You're going to get love and hate, and then you get three other things. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So let's line this thing up. Don't hate love. Right? That's, that's clear parallelism. Don't bear a grudge or take vengeance. Go talk to him. In Leviticus 19... What's loving your neighbor first and foremost about? Dealing with conflict. Going and having those difficult conversations that stop you from bearing resentments and getting angry. So how many of you think of that first and foremost when you hear love your neighbors yourself? Because that is, oh, it means more than that. But that's where it's, 
for any Jew who understood the Old Testament, that's the most immediate application. And I'll tell you pastorally, that's the aspect of love most people have the hardest time with. Most people would far rather love by giving money, far rather love even by helping someone move, than you, gotta go, you need to go talk to them. I don't want to go talk to them. You need to go talk to them. I don't want to go talk to them. <laughs> you know, and man, people will do all sorts of things rather than do that. And so I'm, I'm, I've come convinced over the last 10, 15 years of ministry that, oh yeah, I get why this is the pinnacle of loving your neighbors yourself because this is, I think, for most people, the hardest thing to do is when you're starting to feel resentful, when you're starting to feel embittered, go reason and flank with your neighbor, love your neighbor, stop hating them. Um, but that's huge. And, and that's its first application. It, oh, it means more than that, no doubt. But you read that and you're like, Jesus made that the center of his horizontal ethic. <laughs> I mean, he, Jesus can summarize you. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor yourself. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> so when Jesus quotes Leviticus 19, I probably want to go back and read Leviticus 19 and see what it's talking about. Um, so. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Which, which part you want to highlight there? I mean, yeah, the whole... The whole book. Which portion are you looking at? Oh, oh, sorry. That was yeah. Just the the entire yeah. section of eighteen is is sexual relationships, which is one of those things. Like a lot of people will b- say, um, you know, like oh, we don't need to we don't need to worry about all these Old Testament rules and all these Old Testament laws and all of this stuff about who you can and can't have sex with. We just need to love our neighbor as ourselves. <laughs> Yeah. It's like, huh, funny you should mention that. Let's yeah. look that up. Because the context kind of undercuts what you're trying to say yeah. here. Well, it's like when people try to argue Jesus never said a word about homosexuality. Of course he did. Where did he do that? When he affirmed that the Old Testament would, when he quoted the Old Testament as the word of God, when he said not a jaw or title will, will fall from the law, he, he just affirmed all of it. And trust me, these people knew what it said. I mean, we're the people, I mean, if I hear another unbeliever tell me what the Bible really says, I'm going to pull my... Like, oh, look, it's another person who doesn't know my faith is going to tell me what Jesus really meant. No, 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 please, please. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me how we all believe the same thing? Please. Oh, thanks. Wow, that's all... <sighs> no, so when Jesus says to people, I mean, the Pharisees, as best as we can tell, many of them had memorized the entire Old Testament plus a body of rabbinic material twice as big. So when Jesus said, from, 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 because Jesus, Jesus' Old Testament was ordered different than our Old Testament. I believe Second um, Chronicles was the, la- what we call Second Chronicles was their last book. So when he says, um, from the blood of Abel to righteous Zechariah who died before the altar, he, that's the first and last martyr in the, in the Old Testament. He's grabbing the whole thing. And so when he says the whole thing is God's word, you know, you know neither the power of God. He, he, no one has a higher view of scripture than Jesus. And it's evident that's where Jesus has something to say about homosexuality. Because he just took the entire Old Testament without any qualification, well, not that part, and just calls it the Word of God. I wonder what he thinks. I wonder what he believes. I wonder what his viewpoint is. I mean, it's, but people who don't know what they're talking about say stupid things, and we need to not get mad at them, as tempting as that is. Sorry. Other questions? Yes. Yes, Dave. Dave in the... Oh, oh. Dave, he's got the microphone. Two Daves, Daves in a row. Yeah, can't have too many Daves. Uh, I disagree with that statement. 
It's think, the as yourself. I think we, I think we w- well may actually have crossed our Dave threshold. <laughs> I'm going to forget <laughs> my question here in a minute. It's the as yourself part that's tr- that uh, trips a lot of people up. John MacArthur says that's impossible. That's where I got it. The closest we can get is loving our family as ourselves. Mm. But we can't love, you know, that was his comments on the Good Samaritan, which yeah. he says is primarily about excess. The, the Good Samaritan, I think, is the image of Christ and just his excessive love. Yeah. That guy, you know, paid for rent for months in advance and all <laughs> kinds of stuff. Yeah. But loving your neighbor as yourself, that, you know, I, I guess it's in there to show where we fail. I'm not sure. Well, the yeah, and, and people take that, the whole self-esteem movement tried to hijack that, and the reason you can't love your neighbor is you don't love yourself. Now, the Bible assumes in this way you do love yourself, and the parable of the Good Samaritan is a good example. I, I don't want to, I want to be careful, I don't want to say that what our culture calls low self-esteem is nothing, it's something. I don't think it's rightly named. I don't think the a help. I don't think it's terribly helpful to call it low self-esteem. Um, I'd call it something else. So the Bible talks about love, or people don't love themselves. The assumption here is, if you're cold, and you have clothing, you put it on. You don't not put it on because you're mad at yourself, or you don't love yourself. If you're hungry and you have food or money to buy food, I've never met anybody who, because they didn't love themselves. You know what? I'm not getting food today because I'm mad at me. <laughs> never seen that happen. Or to use a really simple analogy, I've never seen someone not get the good parking space because they didn't think highly enough of themselves. In all the practical ways that the Good Samaritan loved his neighbor, hey, you're hurt. You can use my transportation. Hey, you need a doctor. I'm going to take you to the end. You need a place to stay. He, he loved his neighbor just as you and I would for ourselves. You would spend your money to, to get in and out of the cold you would use your car to drive to the doctor you would all those things that's the bible assumes we love ourselves in those ways you may not feel great about yourself you may disappoint yourself there may be things you want to do or be that you haven't done you may be ashamed of some things you've done you may have all sorts of negative judgments about yourself but make no mistake you are absolutely committed to yourself you're you're on yourself's team and you're that's, so that's the assumption the Bible's making. So I do think that inferiority judgments and senses of, of shame are, are real and powerful forces. I just don't think our culture's framing of it's terribly sophisticated or helpful. Um, that's, that's all. So don't hear me say low self-esteem is nothing. I just don't think it's a terribly good name for what it is. Um, any other thoughts? Oh, Dave in the back. Dave, Dave, Dave Kingery. Come at me, Dave. I can't okay, remember. this is just too much. This is too much. Okay, note to the ushers, only one Dave can be allowed. Oh, no, we got Kegel over here. We got three Daves. Surrounded by Daves. Okay, Kingery. Oh, I, Vody Bachman, Vody Vakam was writing on, or talking on that thing, too, about the the homosexual thing and he was talking about wasn't jesus there when uh the law was given to uh yeah and uh and then jesus was saying whoever teaches the least of these commands mm. break them you know is called least but anyway um i was i was just gonna note pa- that can I this- pause for a second i was really disappointed just recently uh, a guy named owen strachan came what? out say what? that 
Strand came out with a book um, which Vody Bauckham Industries recommended on wokeness and stuff, and I got the Audible version. And right out of no, oh, no, but it's really disappointing when the narrator in the foreword and dedication. This book is dedicated to Vody Bukum. I was like, nah! Oh, I got one. Okay. And then he went off. There's a whole chapter where he's talking about J. Gresham Machen. And I'm just like, seriously, dude? Like, right out of the gate, he's like, this book is dedicated to John MacArthur and Vadi Bukum. And I'm just like, it was just disappointing. I was, anyway, continue, Dave. I was going to, I, I really appreciate the Psalms. I was, uh, because uh, it's like what you were saying, they, they have, uh, uh, I don't know what to say sometimes, and so when mm-hmm. I read the Psalms, I, I go in there and I read stuff like, I was like an animal to you, mm-hmm. and uh, I wish my ways were <laughs> were uh, were more in line with what you want, then I wouldn't be ashamed, <laughs> and then uh, help me to be willing to do what I'm supposed to do. And I can say those those loud, but when I come to the place where he says, "I have obeyed you," I kind of, I uh, I think, oh, I don't know if I'm quite there yet. Because right. I mean, I I mean, I'm not disobeying. I'm doing a lot of stuff that I didn't. I mean, I'm not doing a lot of stuff that I used to do, but I'm still. <laughs> well, that's that's partly Dave, part, Dave. Part of the reason why normally I only do one or two weeks from Psalm 119, and then go back to James. Part of the reason I did all three of these is I wanted to put these three stroves side by side because I think it's important that we're able to say all of them. And the danger would be to just do one of them and think that's the final word. So, the, so if I were to summarize the three words, the three themes of these three stroves, the first one, God is good. In and through your trials, the, the absolute focus on God, it is good for me that I was afflicted. You are good and you do good. We need to be able to say that, even in grief like what we saw today. It's the same trial. So can you see the goodness of God in it? Can you tell God you, you've been faithful, you haven't done me any wrong? Can you also see a picture bigger than yourself, how other people might be edified by it? And still, though, has the freedom to just pour your soul out. I don't get what you're doing and why you're delaying. Help. Ah! You know, and all three of those are righteous and valid. And the danger might be that you only hear one of those. Okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. And these come right after one another with the same assailants, the, the insolent, with the same use of affliction, that all of these are right and good. And, and so if I were talking to anyone and they're only focused on one of these, I might encourage them to move beyond it. I mean, if all you're doing is just why, why, why? Okay, great. Take some time to think about what God's already done through your affliction. Has he, have you, have, has he purified your life more? Have you learned more about him? Do you think he might have encouraged other people? And so th- there's all this. And then there's more Psalms on affliction beyond that. And so there's... It's not as though here's what to do when you're in a dark place. There's so much things. There's so many things to do in a dark place that I wanted to put these three things side by side because they're so different. You know, um, there's three different ways of processing anguish and grief and, and trials. But this Sunday's text is just the raw, bitter pain, bitter, bitter in the sense of it's not sweet, um, vexed. Um, psalm and that's good too you know um, if all you hear is just thank God in your trials well you need to be able to that's not it 
But there's there's more to be said than that, right? I mean, otherwise, that's where you start ending up with the Ned Flanders. Like, okie dokie, it's all good. Well, no, and you need to be able to look at it and say, this is from a loving father's hand. He has done me no wrong. And it hurts like hell. You, you, you got to have room for both. And then the, the weakness on our part is going to be if you can only say the one and not the other. The people who can never acknowledge the pain because they think somehow good Christians don't do that. Or the people who could never possibly imagine a loving God sending the pain. So, yes, Kingery. Oh, I think I'd, it, um, I might be confused on some of this, but sometimes you get to the point where you're doing what you're supposed to do and then you're thinking, uh, oh, wait a minute, I'm I'm reading the Bible because I'm trying to impress God to make a, make me th- make him think I'm. And and then I think, God, I know you know everything, and I'm not impressing you at all. But but I think I'm just doing this to impress you. And so I'm I'm thinking that maybe I'm not obeying God with the right motive, even doing the right stuff. You know what? Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, no, I've wrestled with that. No, I've wrestled with that before because, like, I've heard people, I I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine. If paganism, the fundamental notion of paganism is you manipulate the God to get what you want. So you make the right offering to the God, you you do the right dance, you sing the right song, then can Bible reading be our version of paganism with God? I, I read my Bible today, Lord, give me what I want. No, no, there's a danger that can be the case. I, I think the, the issue is, what do you want? Now, if what you want is, God, I want to know you better, go ahead and be a pagan, I'd say. Like, if, if what you're asking for is, God, I want to know you better. I want to have a closer relationship with you. So that's why I'm reading my Bible. You're not wanting an idol. You're wanting him. Go, go for it. Now, if, you're, if I read my Bible 20 times this week, maybe, maybe, maybe I'll get that raise. Yeah, you are in danger of, like, the pagans who just, go through rituals and things to get what they want. And we're going to get to that really shortly in James. You ask and you have not. You you, you have not because you do not ask. You ask, you not receive because you want to spend it on your desires. You adulteresses. Do you not know friendship with the world is enmity with God? Yeah, they're asking God for things and they're not getting them because they want them for their own pleasures. So I, when, when I get, in short answer, Dave, you're not, you're, I've, I've thought the same thing. <laughs> And then I just got to make clear what, I'm, what I need to d- want when I'm doing that is I, I need to want God. If the thing you want is God, you're not being an idolater. Um, I want to know you better. I want to hate my sin more. I want to know your word better. I want to love you more. I want to be known by you more. And that's why I'm reading my Bible today. Honors God. God is honored by that. And it pleases him. When he says, I don't even judge myself. When he, um, is he talking about things like that, or? Well, yeah, he's well. It's in, you're talking about First Corinthians three or four, where he's basically um, the Corinthians have all these judgments about teachers, and Paul says it matters nothing to me if you judge me. I, I don't even judge myself because he talks about how his conscience doesn't condemn him, but he's not acquitted thereby. Right? Is that the yeah. re- passage you're referencing? He's like, look, my own conscience, my conscience is clean, guys. I know nothing against myself. Now that doesn't mean I'm innocent. Because my conscience can be uninformed. Like my conscience should be dead wrong. But I'll tell you, I have a clean conscience. But honestly, I don't even judge myself. Because Now, obviously, Paul does judge himself in the sense that he's holding up his life to Scripture. 
He's given final judgment over to God. His own personal judgment will be flawed. Like you were saying, Dave, you may think you've done a great job and really your motives were flawed. Well, you might, in some senses, be too hard on yourself. I doubt it, but it's possible. The point is, at the end of the day, God's judgment is what matters. And so Paul is not worried about human days of judgment. I believe that's the passage you're referencing in 1 Corinthians 3 or 4? 4, 3. Can you read it, Linda? can't remember. And so the context there is like judgments of like ratings, A plus, B minus. Paul clearly judges himself like that was sin. But the Corinthians have a court where they're like super good apostle. Paul's a not so good apostle. Yeah, he doesn't care a hoot about that and he doesn't take part in it much, I think is what it's talking about. Is that going where you're going, Dave? Or? kind of go back and forth on it like how do i even know i'm telling myself the truth um so in other words he's saying you know he could try to judge himself but like you said your emotions or your heart are probably going to lean you towards what you you know, want to tell yourself versus what the truth is. And then it says only God is fully qualified to judge when God will judge believers. So let me, let me make another suggestion, Dave, the judgment of how I've done in my life is really none of my concern. The judgment God's God's calling me to is immediate decisions, courses of action laid out in front of me there. I do know right from wrong. And if I don't know what to do, God says, ask for wisdom. The judgment I think they're doing and the judgment he's saying he doesn't take part in. I like if I were to speculate how much I wonder how much of my life's work and ministry is going to burn up on that altar. I suspect a lot more than I think. I don't know how healthy it would be for me to spend the next. You know, next seven evenings contemplating that. That's not a judgment I'm called to make. It will be given to me. Right um, now, if I'm deciding how should I speak to my wife when I go home, that's a judgment God's made for me and I can make. Right. I can just be an obedient slave. OK, I'm speak the truth and love to my wife. Like those are the types of judgments. Or if I just did something, I didn't speak the truth and love to my wife. OK, Lord, I confess, like make those judgments all day long. If you're trying to like weigh so if you're, I guess I'd say this, Dave, if you're considering either things you need to confess that you've done recently or decisions for the future, make those judgments all day long. Paul isn't for a second saying he doesn't do that. If you're trying to weigh how much of my life's work will be chaff and how much of it will be, you know, survive the burn. I don't know if that's a terribly useful thing to spend more than a few minutes on because the Lord will award it that day. I think that's the type of judgment the Corinthians are doing when they like give their apostolic rating scale for people. And Paul isn't interested in it. And I don't really care what you think of me in that sense. I just don't. Okay. We're at time. Thank you, everybody. Have a good day. Godspeed. God bless.